Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Drew Meredith, welcome to The Two Cents. It's good to be here as usual. Yeah, we get up really early for these, six o'clock on a Saturday morning just to record them. No, we don't. We're kidding. We do it during the week. Um, I'm not sleeping. And... We answer your questions. So, we're going to answer some questions today. We've got lots of topical stuff to get through. It's like Armageddon, basically, in the world of finance. <laughs> Drew is doing a bit of a double cobra over here. He's flexing the old guns. He thinks he's onto something. We'll find out more about what he's going on about. But if you do want to ask a question, you can send uh, your question to the uh, RASC websites. You do that on the RASC websites or you do it in the show notes on the podcast player in front of you. There's a thing that says, ask a question. You go through that and you select Australian Investors Podcast. And Drew and I can get to those. Remember, extra points go for funny question names because if you give us a funny name, you go in the draw to uh, get chosen by us on the show to receive a pass to my value investor program, which is normally 499 uh, clams. You get it for nothing. So, Mate, what are we working on? What's been what's been happening on, in the land of Drew Meredith from Waddle Partners? Well, the new ChatGPT app came out, so oh. I've got about eight hours plugged away on the weekend <laughs> to make up some LinkedIn posts and oh, yeah. create a new podcast, maybe. Yeah, sweet, yeah. I don't think you can do audio, visual yet. Probably script it for me. Probably, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, I got a few things off it this morning, I've got to admit. Um, so, interesting, yeah. Pretty amazing. Have you been playing around with it yet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. incredible. You had a... Uh, a kind of an AI or machine learning system set up before ChatGPT. Well, let's not let's, <laughs> let's call a spade a spade. Um, my, before talk, your time, you're talking about all of the self-written articles on yes. our website. So a lot of people don't know this, but um, a few years ago, four four years ago, say I actually wrote. Um, we harvested our own data and ETFs and shares and whatever, and I actually wrote algorithms over the top of that data that would react to share price moves and use different synonyms or emotive language. Uh, and then it would take all that data and write articles. Credit to you. <laughs> Credit to you. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's what we did for a bit. Um, kind of, it, it works, um, but nothing compared to this. So this is a true, like, uh, learning model it evolves uh, it's a lot more powerful so it was, I, I'm not sure if you looked at the Microsoft keynote a few weeks ago no I so, didn't I did see snippets of it on Twitter though Nick Griffin from Munro who you've interviewed before yep. uh, sent it through the other day and there was like video of the new is it within Bing yeah we can get answers and you can go I'm looking at Gap so clothing companies or financial report and, you, and then you could just say ask Bing to 
Bing. Yeah. Yeah. Ask Bing to compare it to Lululemon's and it doing most of the analysis for you while you're sitting there. Um, just the, the applications of this thing are, are just base level applications are significant. Yeah, of course it is. Like it's just in for creative industries, um, I think the thing big thing with chat oh sorry, GPT four is um all of the like it's passed all of the tests, like it passed the bar and a lot of the exams that people would have. Um incredible. So, you know, this is a true learning like learning model. Um and it's just incredible. So this is something we're we're discussing at our, the event next week in one of the Inside Network events. Oh yeah, the AI in finance, financial services, and in companies. Yeah, of course. How do you you know we're talking about the banks today probably? Yeah. Uh, how could could AI and machine learning identify lenders that are about to go, you know, borrowers that are about to default before they're going to default? Yeah. Like analyzing bank accounts, analyzing revenue that sort of thing. So, this kind of proactive mm. assessments. I've always wondered about that because it's obviously been in the background for many years, um, like the data analysis and whatever. And ultimately, I think it just comes back to uh, the quality of the data itself. Yes. Uh, and then how does the data get onto the financial statement? Well, it starts with like humans and people making decisions to get the data on there. So, you can have predictive models for sure. But... I mean, maybe it saves time. Does it improve accuracy? Maybe. Maybe it stops you making so many human errors, like it replaces the investment checklist. Removes a lot of administrative style workers as well, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it, of course it would, yeah. And so I think for a lot of the finance industry, um, there'll be some substantial change. I think from like a creative industry as well, there could be meaningful change from this, like things like copywriting. Um, I saw one example of GPT-4 where you just tell, you could take a sketch of like you could on a notepad, right? You could just do like a notepad of like what a website design would look at. So like what you're doing like Figma, but imagine it's just like literally on a serviette, take a photo of it, give it to chat. Uh, so GPT-4, it will make the website for that. <laughs> It will literally give you the website. That's crazy. That's, yeah. So that's- I just wish I had more time to play with it. <laughs> yeah. And I wish they had a better opportunity to lower the cost every time someone asked a query like that. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a, I was listening to a podcast the other day in that it's a brilliant example of how partnerships can maximize return for both partners so like if you think about that like bing as a search engine and bing as a browser was not in a million years going to catch up to chrome right but through this one thing they didn't have to build open ai but they partnered with them and funded it and in fact this is probably like the this is like going to kill a lot of what not everything for to be sure it's not going to kill everything but it will disrupt a significant amount of things like google um, and other search engines that where you're looking for answers, I still use that as a default, but a lot of people won't be using that anymore because why would yeah, definitely. you? And they're going to launch their own and they kind of did launch their own. Yeah. Um, and which directions is it going to go in? Um, I think it was released earlier than most people expected as well from what I hear in the industry. Well, the thing is that uh, the, it what makes ChatGPT interesting is that it's not necessarily like the, the 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 tool that everyone uses now. It's actually like the B2B, so the business-to-business business applications that are just mind-blowing. So, like we use Notion for all of our notes and that sort of stuff at Rask. And um, all you've got to do to use 
the chat GPT, is you just press, <clears throat> pardon me, space bar on your, when you're in Notion and then you just say, hey, can you just create a list of um, talking points for my guest on Global Equities? Literally <laughs> just press space bar, type that in, it'll come up with 10 questions, like within it's, yeah. three seconds. That, that, that kind of creative- I don't use that, by the motion. way, <laughs> but you could just do that. But when you're stuck and you're short on time, sometimes it's easier to have a starting point, like you, oh. you ask it to do that, and it won't be the questions you ask, but it begins the process, where in our busy days, you, you can it can be difficult just to do that start. Yeah. Oh, um, absolutely. It's super valuable. One of the things that I do with the Australian Investors Podcast guests is I do have like a bank of like 50 different questions that I like to ask, and then I just tweak them for the guest. But I, I, I was sharing this with the team the other day. And they're like, well, you could just use ChatGPT. <laughs> like, damn it. <laughs> Wrong time to put in the effort to make this. We call one of the one of the guys in the team Chat Jim PT now. <laughs> Why? He's well he's he works in journalism okay. uh, and then asking him to adjust GPT articles to make them <laughs> real world. Don't don't tell him that. Oh great. Okay. So what else have you been working on? Uh, I mean I don't think anyone can take their eyes off SVB at the moment, so yep. Silicon Valley Bank, um, trying to work out what's happening there um, and the implications that has for the economy, for mm. interest rates. Interest uh, rates. Wait a second. For everything. <laughs> like, it kind of came out of nowhere. I was I had a wedding to go to as a groomsman on the weekend, uh, and shout I started out. getting phone calls on Friday night. Yeah. Shout out to Daniel and Tiffany. Um and I started getting phone calls on Friday night, which I didn't answer, and then started getting emails on Saturday that were talking about Silicon Valley Bank. Collapse. Collapsing, defaulting, you know, account holders losing all their money. Um, and then within, I think by the time I came home on Monday, the Federal Reserve had stepped in and guaranteed all deposits. So it was like the fastest moving crisis I think we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it's the irony is I'd planned to catch up with a venture capitalist who's based in- uh, Texas. Um, and uh, he, uh, just over the phone, people will know who he is, so I won't say the name. Um, great investor. Mark Cuban. Yeah. Mark <laughs> <laughs> just a baller straight up. He was just grilling a barbecue while he was on the phone. No, but so I was just chatting to him and this was Thursday last week. Yeah. This is when the stock fell 67%. And he's a Silicon Valley investor. Uh, and he was saying, yeah, so I just had a pretty big day. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. I see what's going on. This is the day that they failed to do the capital raising. Yeah. So if you don't know what happened, uh, maybe I'll give a synopsis and you can chime in. Yeah, perfect. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank started from uh, venture capital land because they needed a bank that understood VCs and founders and all this sort of stuff. That's the genesis. Uh, the The way it ended was that a little while ago, the bank decided to invest in long duration bonds. So this is like, government bonds like things that you would think oh yeah no I could sell them in case of a crisis that government bonds have back in the beat which they have to, kind of have to they're legislated to yeah. hold a portion of their capital prescribed capital in, whatever they call it yeah in yeah. government bonds state government bonds those sort of things and then the interest rates go uh, up so the bonds go down that's the way the mechanics of the long duration bonds work and so as the interest rates went up in the US and bonds started to fall, they have to sell, but they're selling them at a loss. Yeah. It's not a problem if you don't have to sell. Yeah. So they can carry them until maturity and get the, the money back. Up. Yeah. Yep. But then they couldn't, to make up the difference, they couldn't, they needed to do a capital raising, but they couldn't do a capital raising because no one was going to invest in them. Yeah. So then they basically said, well, we can't afford it. That's my 
brief overview. That's my executive summary. What yeah, it's like the and there's kind of a lot of mis uh, not misrepresentation, but misunderstanding around what they were doing and what happened. At, at its core, it was just a basic bank run, mm. like what happened in the 1930s, where everyone tries to pull their money out of the bank at the same time. And banks, like in Australia, you have to have tier, I think it's a tier one capital, something like 13% of all the mortgages mm. that you have. So, obviously, if 13% of your capital is requested to be taken mm. out of bank accounts, well, you, you, your capital buffer disappears pretty quickly. And if you don't have to sell it, you're fine. But in this case, they did. And as soon as they get anywhere near insolvency, I think it's the FDIC, they call it over there, steps in and takes control of the bank. Mm. And that's it. And then we move on. Equity, <laughs> equity value just yes, and the, and this vanishes. is why the government stepped in because you can't, and it's so central to the financial system. So when um, Lehman Brothers collapsed, we're in a very different. Oh yeah, one situation. of the questioners actually have for this week. One of the questioners actually said that as their yeah. name. What'd they say? Uh, Lehman moment. Hi, Owen. What are your opinions on two failed banks in the U.S., especially SVB, being the second largest bank since the f- since start to fall since two thousand and eight? Could this be the turning moment for another global recession? I think aggressively increasing interest rates would be the turning moment for global recession, not the collapse of these banks. And we know that since. We don't know when that question came in. It could have come in over the weekend before the solution was solved. But the one you've learned that the government will step in quicker than ever to to solve crises rather than let them become systemic issues. Uh, And it's pretty simple. You know, you can't. You can't have trust in a financial system if your money that you're putting into a bank account is at risk. Yeah. Does that make sense? So, yes, the bondholders will lose money and the equity holders will probably lose all their capital if they haven't already. But the depositors, so people holding the accounts, will be have been protected by the government. Is Bitcoin back? <laughs> <laughs> well, gold. <laughs> uh, like, gold is having the biggest run. Uh, it is now. Massive. Ugh. Exactly. In Where crisis. were you when I needed you, Gold? <laughs> and now? Well, true. It's been tech is rallying at the moment too. So overnight, Tesla, you know, <laughs> Apple and uh, Microsoft and these companies, uh, people just flock back to what they perceive as quality as soon as they can. Um, and then, I mean, it just started with SVB, but you just saw while we were chatting before, Credit Suisse, so another major um, Swiss yeah. bank, of hopefully- <laughs> just got a $81 billion bailout from the Swiss National Bank because they were seeing a similar issue where people were transferring money out and they'd been losing money for quite a few quarters and their capital um, cap- capital was getting under pressure as well. So it's kind of preventing systemic issues, but it kind of brings into question what impact aggressively, you know, increasing interest rates are the most aggressive they have at any point in history is having on the broader economy. Yeah. Uh, and so, Drew. Well, I texted Owen <laughs> this week. There's already a prediction that interest rates will be cut yeah, in the US at least, not in Australia. Were. Yeah. Well, from an investment perspective, if you think about what the government, or not the government, let's make that clear, the Federal Reserve, technically independent of the government, um, even though it's the buyer of last resort of government bonds. <laughs> Uh, the Federal Reserve is now increasing interest rates to combat inflation while providing near interest-free loans in the billions and billions of dollars to banks to make sure they stay solvent. It feels counterintuitive. Mm. If interest rates have kind of contributed to the issue, surely you're starting to get worried about the economy and the impacts that it's having. So this is why 
people immediately, so we saw all that action in the bond market this week. Yeah, so your duration call is looking pretty good. Yeah. So if you're moving to bonds where they benefit from- like VBND. Yeah, V-Bond or IAF in Australia. Um, if you're moving into those long duration bonds, that sounds like such a complicated term, but basically it just means like bonds that are like have a long time to play out. Those are the bonds that are most sensitive to interest rate changes or the expectations in interest rate changes. So if you think that interest rates are going to fall from here, as Drew did, then all of a sudden the value of those bonds should go up. Now, I'm not sure which message you're talking about. I'm just looking at this photo here. It's got like finance bro in a t-shirt. Um, so, for those of you playing along at home, you know who the finance bro is. Um, but you did send me this message too, and I quote, in reaction to looming financial stability risks, we now expect the Fed to cut rates. And that's from, a, uh, from Nomura. Nomura? Nomura, economist. Uh, that was in a note on Monday. So, Drew, is your bet still alive and well? It's much more alive than it was last time we recorded this. <laughs> so Drew is high spirits. <laughs> the financial system is collapsing all around Drew, but he's there like, yes. Well, we just know <laughs> that, and this is the fastest a central bank has ever reacted to this too. It took about 48 hours for them to react and guarantee the deposits. Mm. Uh, and the first thing we saw on Monday, as soon as markets opened, was the, so the, the yield on US and Australian government bonds, which were both close to 4% before this fell to as much as 3 as low as 3.5%. So their values went up pretty heavily quickly by like 4 or 5% in like four days. Mm. And that's massive for, you know, it's two years worth of return for bonds. Yeah. Um, so yields are falling. And if you look at what the we call the market with air quotes mm-hmm. is pricing in, that's where the, you know, where the traders are, what they're expecting from interest rates in the next 12 months. Basically, zero mm-hmm. chance for another rate hike from both central banks. <laughs> <laughs> I was just have to. I just had to catch up with what you were saying, and I was like, you could see the light bulb come on. I was like, need sound now. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's like it's going to dominate Credit Suisse. Uh, I think it's highly unlikely anything similar would happen in Australia. Mm. Um, very different capital system and mismatch, or the matching of uh, assets and liabilities is a, I believe, is more uh, aggressive and prudent by APRA, the the local regulator, um, and then Australia has predominantly floating rate loans. So, like your mortgage goes up and down even if there's a fixed rate for a couple of years. Exactly. Whereas overseas, you can get those 30-year loans that are fixed, and which would be crazy. Imagine if they offered that. Well, you can't actually move your house. Like the, the thing, the problem that people in the US have is if you locked in a 30-year mortgage at 2%- Why would you move? And you have to renegotiate at six, you're just stuck. <laughs> Like you never increase mortgage prisoners, yeah. house prisoners. <laughs> it could be a beautiful giant house, um, but it's yeah, you'd be increasing straight away. So actually, I follow this um, fans of Twilio or something on uh, no fans of Zillow or something Zillow fans on Twitter, and it's got all of these outrageous houses, and it's like one and a half million. You're like, look at that, and then you compare the headlines in Sydney of what you get on REA Group. You're like, I can get a shoebox in Sydney or a mansion in Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, oh, Siri's responding about Michael Jordan's house. Uh, so, obviously, it's big news. So, SVB collapse, maybe it forces a pretty hard pivot, at least maybe not even a pivot. Maybe it's a pivot in thinking or rhetoric Yes, around, hey, guys, it's okay. We're not going to keep increasing interest rates into oblivion. We do see what's going on. Yes, and there's a, it's a reverberating around the economy. Um, you, 
hopefully you don't have further bank runs. But when when this you've seen what happens, this all started on Twitter last week. You know, a couple of people talking on Twitter about how the bank was was yeah. struggling created an actual bank run. Uh, so I think it's incredibly important, but it, it is, <clears throat> if we think about it, it is a sideshow to what else is happening yeah. in the rest of the economy. Yeah. Um, and hopefully, I mean, we it looks like regulators have learned in each crisis that acting quickly and acting decisively, even if you're partly wrong, um, is better than waiting too long. Yeah. Well, that's what we saw during COVID too. Like obviously, they stepped in and just said, here's money. Yeah. Um, we'll solve the problem. Uh, and it did work, but obviously we got inflation yeah. because we got supply chain bottlenecks. They couldn't have sold. I saw that was coming, but yeah. Okay, so Drew's uh, Andrew Derrimuth, our boots on the ground economist, uh, is suggesting that he may indeed have got the call right. I'm still waiting on my job at the RBA yeah. on the RBA board as well. <laughs> well, Phil apparently listens to this podcast. Call me when you're ready, Phil. <laughs> so okay, so. All interesting. We could have an update next week that Credit Suisse couldn't do it. <laughs> Holy hell, things are bad. <laughs> but at the moment, it's kind of like we're still investing for the long term. Exactly. Um, in fact, if you just think about the mechanics of investing, money has to go somewhere in the financial system. And I think Matthew Hopp said this this week on the podcast from Wilson Asset Management. But he said, money has to go somewhere. So figure out the best place to put it and put it there. Yeah. Um, and that's basically the way the system works. So uh, there is a, before we get to questions, Drew, there's something that I've been hoping to do. Thanks to our sponsor, GlobalX, GlobalX ETFs. Uh, I think the tagline is Beyond Ordinary, sponsored the show. Been, well, obviously took over um, ETF securities. The very first sponsor we ever had of a podcast or anything at RASC, a long-term sponsorship agreement that's been going on for years now. Um, they were interested because I think it was last year I think it was last year, you and I had a bit of a disagreement over how to use- oh, they the, listen. <laughs> they listen. They were interested in how you would use the FANG Plus ETF. I think we've switched to- Yeah. So, the FANG Plus ETF from GlobalX is an ETF that basically gets you exposure to big tech stocks. Um, just to give you some of the names that are inside of this thing, you've got Meta slash Facebook at 14% at the moment, NVIDIA, uh, uh, AMD, Tesla- Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Alphabet, Snowflake, which is more of a recent addition, and Netflix, Twitter, and a bunch of the Chinese tech stocks were in there, but they're out now. Now, normally you'd be thinking about this as like a pretty, I don't know, you think it's a pretty concentrated portfolio. It's not really ETF-esque because it's so concentrated. It's almost a tech growth disruption. Yeah. But the since inception returns are 17.7% or over three years, 19%. Um, so, pretty comparable to the index. It charges 35 basis points. But this is the... The key question for you, Drew, and maybe something for us to go back and forth over a minute or two, is how do you use an ETF like this? I think I've changed. I think we were using it core last yeah. year. Yeah. Um, and I think I've gradually switched towards uh, more of a satellite. And maybe that's part of the macro environment. Yeah. Like tech was so central to the economy and the and growth that was pace. occurring. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and more recently, uh, we've wanted a more balanced kind of call so this i don't think it's a i think we still think it's a great product but i think it sits more as a satellite exposure to technology rather than a large weighting in your call yeah see whereas at the time i said i wouldn't necessarily ha have it in the core but i'd have it in the satellite whereas now i'm kind of a little bit of both <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so there's no answer yeah it so, has changed a lot though have you, that's it, you got yeah. rid of the chinese tech stocks yeah which i kind of liked yeah i 
What did you? I didn't. I didn't like that. Yeah, I mean, if you're thinking about technology and disruption, you want Alibaba's the, the biggest cloud computing company in the world. No, no, no it's biggest in Asia. Biggest in Asia. Yeah, but yeah, eventually be biggest in the world. Probably anything yeah. in China will. You know, they have the biggest beer. They have the biggest every. <laughs> they do drink a lot of beer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, but kind of, you can't have like I feel. And this isn't there. This isn't Global X's problem. It's the index that was behind it, and the issues that China and US government are having with each other on yeah. listing on the New York Stock Exchange. So, um, I think I'd love the the China exposure. Mm. Well, it's now got Microsoft. Yeah, which is, um, I'd say, an advantage too. Yeah, and Twitter was booted out, thankfully. Uh, so, because that thing wasn't doing anything. Um, and so, at the end of the day, what you're basically buying in this basket, you could go and buy Facebook. Amazon, those stocks directly, or you could just plug this in. Yep. And that's why I see it more as like a satellite approach of like, well, you know, you mentioned before, if like, if you if people are switching back into equities, like back into shares, what do they want? Well, they probably want exposure to high quality compounders. And one of the things I was really interested, really thinking about this morning on the way into the office was that, you know, everyone's talking about all these massive job losses at these huge tech stocks. A tech company, sorry. Well, cast your mind forward 12 months. I actually, I, I hate it when people lose jobs. Don't get me wrong. But from a financial perspective, that would probably be a great decision. Yeah. Those things were just hiring like anyone and everyone. I knew plenty of people that were not working but were being paid. Yeah, and they'd be paid so much money. Yeah. And now all of a sudden they've cut the staff because they realize they can't do that into infinity. So I actually think that maybe these companies could emerge stronger. But the one concern I have, I guess, with the FANG plus ETF is that like it's like a mini thematic because you're focused on like tech stocks. Yeah, I think if you're going to go buy Meta or uh, not Facebook because Facebook is Meta or Microsoft, you as an individual investor, it's a good idea to do it that way. Yeah, you could do it as an individual investor that way and you could pick and choose. But the thing that I was more going to throw out is that if you're going to do it, I think it... It needs to be clear, like that, it's not just a Fang product. Yeah. Because if like Meta isn't a very good tech stock in a year from now, you want to know that it evolves, which it kind of has recently. Yeah. So I don't, I actually don't mind that. I think it's a tilt towards, um, you know, U.S. tech stocks for thirty-five basis points or zero point three five percent. I can see why it's got two hundred and twenty million bucks in it at the time of recording. Similar way to what we I think we talked about ACDC, which I think is yeah, it's um, also Quebec, yeah. Quebec, uh that if a if a client came in and said they wanted lithium, uh, similarly if a client came in and said they wanted disruptive tech, I probably prefer to buy one of these yeah. than try to buy three stocks that covered that. If yeah. that makes sense. Oh, especially as a financial planner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's you like you, you focus on wealth creation, not like punts yeah, or whatever. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah. It's a nice safer not safe, but safer or more diversified More way. diversified option. But it's like so just to for balance here, the beta shares NDQ ETF, I think is the biggest ETF and it's just Nasdaq one hundred, which is it's easy to see why a lot of people weren't exposed to that. So that's a bit more diversified. But the one of the, and I think that's a great ETF as well. But one of the things you might have, just be mindful of if you're playing along at home, is you might have the IVV ETF, which is the S&P 500. And then if you have NASDAQ, there might be a lot of overlap. There probably would be a lot of overlap in the FANG one as well. Yeah. But it's just a question of what are you adding them for? So just understanding like, what's what do I really want when I add either NDQ or FANG to IVV? If IVV is in your core... If you're adding NDQ, you're going to get a little bit more diversification. Yeah. If you're going with Fang, you're going to get more punchy. I just want the big profitable tech, tech stocks. Yeah. So all in all, like 
you can see from our answer, it's basically like how does it fit alongside your other strategy? And we have, I'd say, I expected us to be more in disagreement. So it's actually mild disagreement. Um, if you do want us to cover some ETFs or funds, even like active funds, and uh, uh, you want us to review them, you want to say, hey, I want to draw, I want you to go at it side by side for five minutes on something. Let us know. Like we will, ha one of us will happily play devil's advocate and kind of push the other one on all the questions. Let us know right into us. Um, at uh, you'll find the link in the show notes actually. So, um, all right, let's get to some questions, Drew, because we are a bit in and we've got a few to get through. So, obviously, any of the uh, responses that we have are strictly limited to general financial information only. We ask you to anonymize your name and to give us less information. If you do write in the question. Uh, what should I do? We're going to probably avoid that question because it goes very close to personalized advice. So, you'd have to see a financial planner like Drew here or someone like Drew. Um, and you can check you are seeing a legitimate financial advisor by going to the Money Smart website and checking their name or AFSL. Okay. So, straight to the pool room mirrors, straight to the pool room mirrors says, I've moved to Australia 15 months ago and I'm planning to stay here at least uh, for some time, a minimum of five years. Uh, I have built a stock market portfolio in my previous country and I'm thinking about investing here. I would like to know if there is a way to avoid double taxation or should I just keep focusing on my investment journey in a single country? Now, I've clipped this in. This isn't, this is a very, very, very technical Definitely. question. So, the reason I kept this in, we actually, Drew, we actually do have a lot of people write into us and say, hey, I'm from a different country uh, and I've moved here and I'm investing. This happens with a lot of professional people. They come and do some comments or whatever. Um, and I just thought maybe you would have some like questions you might want to ask them in return or something that they could think about. Because yes. we don't know the answer, basically. Yeah, exactly. So, what do you think? I think it, or in this case, it depends on your tax residency, yeah. which we don't know what country you're in as well. Yeah. Most people come from the US or the UK yeah. or somewhere similar, and we have a lot of double tax treaties. So, you shouldn't be getting double taxed. Let's just make sure you've got an account that can deal with both. That's from um, our side of the fence, though. But from their side of the fence, if they're in the UK or America, they could be very- Re-reporting it back there, yeah. Yeah, it could be very onerous tax reporting. Yeah, so. definitely the US is probably one of the worst ones. Yeah. We know that. They tax you on every global dollar yeah. of income. I'm sure there's credits for Australian tax if you pay it. Um, and then there's some unique things around CGT for residency and non-residency, where I think you're not- you're not deemed to have to pay CGT in some cases or withholding taxes at different rates, normal tax mm -hmm. on passive income. But yeah, we don't know this close enough to comment yeah. too deeply. Yeah. And probably the thing that I'd say is the ATO has been a great resource for me looking at this stuff over the years. Um, the key consideration you have to determine yourself or your accountant will determine this for you is are you a tax resident? You might be living here, but that may not necessarily mean you're a tax resident because there's a certain number of definitions, I won't go into them. Um, you know, if you've lived here for a certain number of time, if you earn income here, et cetera, et cetera, that will automatically trigger a whole different set of rules for you. Yeah, so, exactly. so go and check that out. Okay, the next question I'm gonna bundle in um, and with two, uh, because they're kind of similar. And the first one came from the Wounded Turtle, great name. Gents, you may have already answered similar type questions to this previously, um, but they go on to say like, should I be, investing money to try and pay down my mortgage around 400k or should i oh, sorry saving money to pay down my mortgage or investing and they go on to say that you know ripping the band-aid off and trying to pay down the mortgage it's like selling all of my babies it really hurts uh, and then another part of it is a another question wrote in a question i wrote in and said and their name is the incompetent tent pole 
<laughs> wrote in and said, with many savings accounts now offering 4% with hoops to jump through, is now a legitimate is it is this now a legitimate alternative to investing in stocks slash ETFs? Obviously, there are many factors to consider, being the risk appetite, but people often compare dividend yield to, from stocks to bonds, savings accounts, and term deposits. So, can you do a pros and cons comparing 4% from interest in savings to 4% dividend yield? So, these are kind of both the same question. They're asking like, well, interest rates are high. Should I be investing or should I be paying down a mortgage? That's it. Definitely. And I think, what do you reckon? Well, we've answered this quite a bit, so we don't have to spend too long on it, but- I think uh, part of it can be a highly personal question. So it is, you're talking about an established portfolio of shares that probably have a lot of capital gains, yep. that can have a lot of capital gains on them. So that brings an extra wrinkle. Yeah, you've got extra tax so you might have to pay. In the, of a word into there. But I spoke to someone the other day and they they just taken out a mortgage for a lifestyle property um, and they were picking and choosing the stocks that had the least gains or they didn't expect to recover in the next shorter period of time and putting that off their non-deductible mortgage straight away. So it could be an it depends kind of situation. Um, What's that one? But, but but broadly, I mean, interest rates going higher. Do, how you know what age are you? Uh, how much flexibility do you want? Yeah. What else do you want to do? Because you could almost have your mortgage paid off by doing that now, but you'd be giving up maybe twenty or thirty thousand dollars. Who knows in in tax to do it? So it's probably a bit of a balance of the of the two. Um, if you're sitting in cash, then definitely. And didn't have capital gains, and we'd yeah. my my views always pay down that non-deductible as quickly as you can, um, or you could start redrawing it for that uh, yeah. investment facility. Yeah, and this is the thing we had someone wrote wrote in maybe a week or two ago who said basically I've just been so disheartened hearing this because we've said basically it's an emotional decision and it makes a lot of sense to pay off your mortgage because if you can get ahead on that, it's emotionally good, but also with if your interest rate on your mortgage is six percent. Um, that you got to remember in after tax dollars, it's closer to like 9%. Yep. So you've got to make a 9% return on stocks to then take that money uh, and compete with your mortgage. And do, will you make that? There's no guarantee. To but, a point too, because if you got it down to 100 grand, well, you may well want to increase, yeah. use your equity and start putting that back into the shares. Yeah. So yes, you could. Yeah. Um, so maybe you do a line of credit or something like that against your home, which will get you a lower interest rate, and then you use that too as like recycling or whatever. But you want that flexibility first. Yeah, absolutely. Get get it down, and a lot of people do, but some people don't, Drew. To be honest, like I'm not in a uh, famous last words touch wood. I'm not in a position where I'm in a super big rush to pay off my mortgage. I know that sounds kind of counterintuitive, but I'm also I like the emotional feeling of buying things. I like investing money for the long term, and to be honest, depending on what I buy. I think I could maybe match close to the return from some investments. Um, that's my kind of gung-ho. You like Overconfidence give me the, bias. Overconfidence bias. Yeah. Recency uh, bias. Recency bias. Legend bias. <laughs> 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 no, but seriously, like I, you know, even if I'm not that far away from me, the, the, the feeling of feeling like I'm investing money is actually a really positive thing for me. Um, and the mortgage is still being paid off. It's just like I'm. I'm Plus, just you've got a business that you're building equity in at the same time. You're Absolutely. naturally a risk taker. Extreme risk taker. <laughs> when you think about it, I think that's what a lot of people underestimate too. If you're in a business, right? A lot of the conversations about diversification, uh, it's kind of like an all bets are off for, for people that run their own business, like you do. Um, because if you think about it, like so much of your wealth is tied up to one thing. And you're used to having that risk. 
And we're not saying that that's a good thing for the stock market by any means. But my either I've been like desensitized to risk or I've just kind of like that that is matching my risk profile. Yeah. Or you uh, just black it out like I do. And, yeah. <laughs> and you just think, okay, except, rock except up to work. Except you have to pay all the bills in the morning. And <laughs> Also, I think straight to the pool rumorous, which was the first question. There used to be a place um, near my area called the pool room. <laughs> it's a bit of a Thursday night dirty dance. So... <laughs> <laughs> All right, next question comes from let's get on the Buffett train. Are we going to answer the incompetent tent pole? Oh, incompetent tent pole. Difference yeah. between, yes, go for it. Definitely. <laughs> so that's, that's your response. So the question was in case you can't remember, is there like difference in like benefits of like stocks to savings to bonds to that? Fixed income has never been more relevant. So bonds, turn deposits, cash. You can get 5% on Rabo, and I think you said go line. Go the lion. Oh, go no. the lion. Yeah. Not go the yeah. <laughs> But always, I'm noting their variable rate. So the problem with variable rates and term deposits is what happens is when it matures in 12 months time, you've got to reinvest it. Yeah, okay. What's the rate going to be when you reinvest it? But you can get reasonable, uh, nice returns in fixed income at the moment, which you haven't been able to get in five, 10 years in some cases. Um, you know, six or 7% from some types of bonds and credit. Um, the, the, and you, and, Part of the reason that property and property trusts and stocks have been falling is exactly the message that incompetent tentpole has brought up, which is as the low, what we call the risk-free rate, so the the return you can get without taking much risk, as that rate goes up, the amount of income or return you want from every other asset class goes up, and to get that, the value goes down. Yep. So property prices are falling, equity prices are falling, prices of basically everything are falling uh, just for that reason. I think the issue of relying solely on low-risk investments at 4 or 5% is that this year in particular, you're guaranteeing a negative return if you think about if you're worried about inflation. Yep. So I think, yeah, it's, I think this, this is a, I guess a mistake a lot of people make is like the tax either side. If you look at a 10-year outlook with prices lower, the yield is higher. Yep. Right? So, um, it's a great question and that's the question we're talking about before, right? Is like at this point in the cycle, someone's like, oh, you know, I really need to pay down my mortgage because they're the people that are selling the stocks and the someone who's got the variant or the, you know, con- uh, contrary per- perception is, well, that guy's selling his stocks because he's worried about his mortgage. I'll buy the stocks that he's selling because he's not worried about them. I'll take them off his hands. And so, this is where we make a market and we have the, the different perceptions. Now, Chances are, like, they could both be right. Like, there could be a good decision to sell the stocks and pay down the mortgage. But the other decision could be, like, is now a good time to invest? I think, like, broadly speaking, yes. That, um, you know, there's a lot of fear in the market. So, if you are a buyer and you're not super pressed in your your budget, it could be a good time. Question uh, is, the, the next one comes from, let's get on the Buffett train with one F and one T. So, Buffett. 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 <laughs> I, I thought that was Bullet Train, uh, like the Brad Pitt movie. Um, but let's get on the Buffett Train, says... <laughs> Considering the Aussie dollar is much lower than the American dollar, do you think it's a good idea to invest in the US market? Now, I would just say Aussie dollar versus US dollar, I would just say this. If you're investing overseas, the first thing maybe always shouldn't be which 
what's the currency right now. Um, I think Drew will share his rule of thumb, but Aussie dollar is currently around 66 cents, which is below the long-term average. Thereabouts, yeah. Yeah. And so, one of the things you can do is look at, what would you say, standard deviation, Drew, for the Aussie dollar? Yeah, we kind of look at the long-term trend and currency is very momentum-driven, particularly Australia because we're such a small part of the world. Yeah. Um, and we've got a, kind of got a broad rule. If it's a couple of standard deviations outside of the long-term average, then you want to take a real position on it. Um, so if it's average is like 60, 68, 70 cents and it's 50, then, you, then you're starting to think about hedging. Yep. Uh, and if it's the opposite, so if it's sitting at closer to 90 or over a dollar, then you start thinking about unhedging. Yep. So we can see, I'm just, I've just got my chart up here, Drew. Uh, it's from our best GTF website, and it actually tracks two standard deviations of the uh, Australian <laughs> were dollar. My, were my figures right at all? <laughs> it, it shows it over time, and we're at the bottom end of the standard deviations. Yep. So, um, and then you've got, you can see Which like you can there's kind a of long-term moving average, and it, we're well below, statistically below the moving average. Yep. Now, this is us getting straight into the charts here, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen. We're getting straight into <laughs> the, the technical analysis. This. this is with the chart going back to 1993, mind you. Um and the reality is that we, there is no, no one knows for certain where this will go, but you can typically follow bond yields, which follow interest rates, which follow inflation. <laughs> so, so that's why inflation is such a big beast to tame because it tells you where the interest rates will probably go, which is where the currency will probably fluctuate to. Uh, and obviously, see, so you've got really high interest rates in the United States, you've got really high inflation as well, and a lot of money is flying back there, hence, yep. hence the dollar the American dollar being stronger, our dollar being weaker. Um, now, that's good if you've already owned your US dollars. Uh, I would just say that, yes, it's an important consideration, but if you are a very long-term focused investor, maybe, I mean, I still, you could, I, I, I should say this, I hedged a portion of the portfolio that I manage. So I hedged a portion of it, not all of it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a key distinction. It's not all or nothing. I just hedged a portion of it. Um, and for the most part, I'm unhedged. And there are, there's a lot of hedged options available now. Oh, like there's a lot of funds is, yeah. you can get a hedged option. IBV, yeah. a lot of the big major ones, there's a hedged option. So it's it's not a decision. It's a decision you can implement quite yeah. easily, um, even if it's buying more of that one rather than reducing the current one you're holding. Um, I mean, we had lunch. we had a lunch yesterday had like the chief economist for Franklin Templeton globally. Nice. Um, and they were essentially saying, as you said, there's a couple of inputs into currency. The most important one is the interest rate differential. So the interest rates in Australia versus the interest rates in the US. Mm-hmm. And what they saw was that when Silicon Valley Bank blew up, the US dollar actually fell when in other crises it would increase. Yeah, normally it does. Yeah. Everyone rushed the US dollars. So it's more that idea that if interest rates, that happens, interest rates fall, US dollar could weaken. And there's a view that the US dollar may have kind of been reaching a peak and hence the Aussie dollar would rally against it. And in that case, so just put incredibly simply, if the US dollar, if the Australian dollar is rallying and you hold US dollar assets, your return is worth less. Mm. You want the Aussie dollar falling when you're holding overseas assets. So that's when you'd like to hedge. Yeah. So the biggest... A few things, just some rules of thumb. You can hedge basically all of your core portfolio if you use ETFs these days. Um, you've got, in the terms of gold, 
You've got uh, some of the more established gold ETFs include GOLD from GlobalX, sponsor of the show, as you know. Um, or you've got the BetaShares QAU ETF, which is currency hedged. And that's probably the best illustration of how hedging impacts performance. Because both of them invest in gold, but one of them hedges the currency and the return from the BetaShares one hasn't been nearly as good over 10 years because of the currency. Yep. Now, if that changes and you think, well, the Australian dollar is going to go up against the US dollar, well, maybe you use the alternative ETF. Maybe use the BetaShares ETF finally. It's like US dollar gold is $1,900, but Australian dollar gold is $2,900. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And when you go global for bonds, you typically want, like typically, because that's a defensive part of your portfolio, you typically want hedged. That's why so many of the ETFs that do global bonds are hedged because it's a defensive side of your portfolio. Whereas with shares or equities, you typically, like you make a choice whether you want hedged or unhedged. Okay, good question. So um, the the next question comes from Turtle Jesus. And I'm going to match this question with Rich Gearbox, uh, who says, Turtle Jesus says, love the show and the banter. Question is about lithium. Stocks that have a big run over the past few years and now seem to be pulling back. The real EV use hasn't really kicked in yet. So is this just, uh, is it best to just buy, uh, just to hold and wait? Um, or, you know, and, and wait for the, for believe in the short, ever-growing short sellers list? <laughs> what? Is it just hold on or believe in the short sellers and sell? Oh, believe in the short sellers, right. Okay. Oh, no, believe in the, the story or... Uh, capitulate to the short side. Ah, I gotcha. Sorry, that's my bad England. So, Rich Gearbox said, Hi, Andrew. Question. As a long-time Pilbara Minerals shareholder, I noted in the company's recent financial statement that they were looking to make an acquisition of another business. Would this be another mining company? So... Are we doing like a pair trading approach? We are pair trading our two lithium questions. So, there's two questions here. One is... Lithium, hot or not, Drew? This is <laughs> sounds like a Kramer show. <laughs> I think there's a lot of smoke coming out of the lithium. Yeah, and I think it, it's just commodities. We got to remember commodities are cyclical. It's why it's hard to hold these things as a, as the core of a portfolio because you have these incredible momentum-driven runs, and the story shows that there's massive shortage of lithium based on supply, yep. but they're commodities. The price goes up, more supply, new technology. Look at what happened to shale. Remember, we were talking about peak oil. Oil was over $100, and then all of a sudden, shale and oil was back to $30 or $40 barrel. So, commodities, things change, but we kind of make these predictions in a vacuum. Um, I think that one thing that's clear is lithium demand is going to continue and sustain. What that price settles at is the, is the difficult one, um, and that's why we kind of apply a conservative approach, and that would be have it in a diversified way and have it as a very satellite position if you're going to do it and that Absolutely. way it doesn't matter if you're right or wrong you've got an exposure to an important thematic i think it's an important thematic lithium uh, and decarbonization more broadly but do i need to own individual stocks in that when i'm not an expert at mining and resources no we mentioned the acdc etf from globex also a sponsor of the show um of course like you can use a product like that um in terms of pilbara that's also in the acdc etf but that has been we've we've remarked over this in the office quite a few times that Pilbara is a standout example of what can happen if you're lucky in this space. Yep. You know, Warren Buffett has that that the three eyes of investing. Um, you know, the innovators, imitators, and idiots. And some of the companies may fall into the imitators. Many of them will, and some of them may fall into the idiots' baskets. And you don't want to be investing in one of those companies that are just selling the dream. Uh, and that tends to happen in these bull runs where they kind of wash out those those last eyes. Um, and I would just say, just be very careful. 
we see a lot of trading activity around these funds. Uh, we had Luke Larrative on the show not too long ago talk about lithium and talk about his preferred play. I think he mentioned uh, he went on and talked a lot about um, Vulcan Energy, which is a different one altogether. So just really be mindful of the risk exposure. Know what your downside is and limit that at the portfolio level as well as the security level. Um, and corporate issues can eat at returns too. There was a lithium company that yeah. – that kind of exploded recently because they didn't own the tenements that they were supposed to be mining yeah, well, or that's something. just that's um, craziness altogether yeah. but um but similar to not comparing that but the problem with pilbara's success is that they now have money yeah and they're probably being advised to diversify yeah that's what all the bankers will be telling them but oh, you just the way, want them to be a cash box yeah. you essentially you've done all the work you've taken all the risk and now you've got this cash flow and just pay it out just keep paying it out yeah, and yeah, it would. Yeah, I, I have no knowledge of what it would be that they're purchasing, but that's the, that's exactly what Drew is saying. Is there is something to be said about um, companies? So, yeah, simplicity. Absolutely, that's what I would opt for. But a lot of the com- there is something to be said for companies that um, are trying that have finite resources, trying to increase the reserves, and particularly early in a long, structurally important industry. So if you think about companies, they so say like a gold miner, a gold miner almost needs to acquire other mines because a lot of the new exploration and whatever just doesn't pass muster. But buying an existing mine or site where they know there is gold, it just hasn't been mined or mined effectively, that's a really effective way to grow a resources business. So Northern Star Resources did this so well. When it started NST as the ticker symbol, it basically just bought other mines that they thought, well, those guys own it and they've been mining it. They're not doing a very good job. So we'll go over and take that and execute better. Um, And then you could say the same thing for Pilbara. Like we can get more resources and use our expertise over in there. But you don't want that to be the core of their strategy because they could just blow themselves up. Yeah. You know, anyway, so it's a great question. Uh, (laughs) Sam writes in, Sam Sam says, I'm a tradie that wants to start investing. I've currently been using paper trading app uh, to get some experience and over the last year grew at 28%. Great, uh, great one, Sam. And there was a, he goes on to say a few things or she goes on to say a few things. Sam, probably male or female, I guess. Uh, I work full time and don't have the time to go beyond all the data and the facts and figures, go into all the data and facts and figures. Can I just buy on what I think is a good company or are there some simple factors that I can take into account like PE ratios, volume, etc.? I want to invest long-term. Now, obviously, we can't give personal advice around what you can or should and shouldn't invest in. But what we can say is just some general stuff. Um, I'll start maybe, Drew. Uh, it, uh, in an investing cycle, like in an investor's cycle, I would say, is a lot of the times people start off simple and they just buy like, oh, I'll buy NAB because I saw, saw the bank branches. Oh, I'll buy Apple because I use Apple products. And that can work for a little while. And then you go up and you get really confident and then you come way back down. Yeah, That's what we call the humility curve. And as you go up that curve, Sam, you get to a point where you start into things that are really risky and you don't understand. And our job here on the podcast is basically if you think about this like going starting down low and going way up and then coming back down the other side like a mountain, we want to make sure that you can, rather than going all the way up and down, just cut straight across to the stuff that we kind of think works. Slow compounding. Yeah. And a lot of the time people go from... Oh, buy these stocks, blue chips, sound good. Oh, look at this thing. It's a mid cap. Oh, it's a small cap. Oh, look, it's CFDs. Oh, look, it's up here. And then all of a sudden, money's just igniting. Crypto. Crypto. Um, so we want you to go from buying really stable stocks to then building a diversified portfolio. Yeah. Now, what you do around the outside is completely fine. Um, 
Oh, that's a, like I, I'm a big fan. Uh, the young fellas, particularly like this one, is that if you want to go and buy all those things, go and do it, but limit it. Yeah. Don't put all your money in something like that. Uh, and so you're on. I think if you uh, if you want to learn, keep reading. There's actually a link in my Twitter bio, Sam, that takes you to uh, what we call an investor uh, boot camp, uh, and it's like a Google Doc of 28 pages that includes my best books, resources, videos, and interviews, um, and some of our own interviews in there as well to help you learn about investing. So go and check that out, Sam. It's designed for someone like you. Uh, I'll even put the link in the show notes now that I remember it. So uh, it's just like an analyst boot camp uh, and it just takes you through the basics. It's all free. Go and check it out. We don't have a simple answer. Yeah, and there's no simple rules to investing. You get started. Uh, we'll always say get your core right as much as you can, whether that's in yeah. ETFs or at least a broad-based direct stock portfolio. Yeah. Like don't be buying one and celebrating a 20% increase. Yep. You want to you want to be more because I was talking to a, a new client yesterday and said how well they'd done on a couple of single holdings, but that's that's you know paper <laughs> and and yeah. single holdings you're also taking significant risk and concentration to get that. So you want to build up a, a diversified portfolio, whether that's stocks or ETFs, as quickly as you poss- as poss- possible. And even our retiree clients have you know a 15 percent allocation to. What do you, you can call it? I think people call it pin money or pin money, or yeah. fun, yeah. fun things, and that's where they might get a tip from their neighbour. They should buy a biotech stock, yeah. um, and that's fine. But put it within context and size it appropriately. Yeah. So we say, Sam, or I say that just have it. Your core portfolio should be low cost, boring, diversified, and then avoid all those flashy objects. And then the other money, which might be ten percent of your money, goes into that other stuff. I'd also say that one year of results is not enough. Um, if you get through 10 years and you've got 28% returns per annum, then that's a different story. Then maybe there's something to that. But after one year, the risk that I see, Sam, is when people come to investing, they go one of two ways pretty quickly. They get quite overconfident, not saying that you are, but people get quite overconfident, or they go the other way and they get hurt and they see the stocks or ETS fall and they think this is like gambling and it goes the other way. So please just know kind of you keep your emotions in check. Keep learning. The best investors are humble and just keep learning. Um, so we can't give any specific guidance, but that's kind of like the general gist of things. So maybe we've got two more questions, Drew. Um, so Andrew Derrimuth's brother. Hi, Luke. <laughs> My brother's uh, name is Luke. But okay. maybe, maybe Andrew Derrimuth's brother's. It was Derrim- it's a Derrimuth or Derrimuth's? Uh, either way, it's a good one. Um, gents, firstly, love the pod and the Q&A seems to be my favorite segment as I feel I learn the most by the assortment of different questions. Well, great. That's the point. I really like to dive deeper into Asian equities. I believe there are some great growth. There's some great growth in this area over the next few decades. And I would love to hear your views on this area and how to get exposure to it. Uh, It goes on to say a few things. Um, Should you get exposure through EM funds or purely Asia specific funds? Do you, are there any funds that you keep your eye on? Um, mentions the Fidelity Asian Fund that's unlisted. True. Uh, yeah, I mean, we within portfolio construction context, so we look at asset allocation, and Asia is a definite, deliberate tilt mm-hmm. in our portfolio. So if you think we own thirty percent in international equities, yeah, I'd say as much as fifteen to tw- about ten to fifteen percent of that would be in Asia or emerging markets. Mm-hmm. Um, there's obviously multiple options. So you look at Vanguard, V-E-V-M. And what's their, v- what's their 
Emerging market strategy, sorry. But we'll, we'll get this up. Um, Vanguard's Emerging Markets ETF uh, would be, this. we'd always start and look at a passive strategy and is that giving the best exposure? We look at that and probably say- VGE. VGE. Well, that, that <laughs> There's too many. Way off. Oh, no, uh, you're right. No, Vanguard Emerging Market Shares Index Fund is VMES. VME. Yeah, this is confusing. Yeah, so uh, just- yeah. You start at that point, but the, the issue you see with some of these indices is because they're- there's such massive companies like Alibaba and Tencent, they dominate the benchmark. And if, you, uh, if you're comfortable with that, that's fine. But in our view, like there's, a, there's certain asset classes within or certain parts of markets around the world where active management has proven to be able to generate returns above the benchmark, mm-hmm. but to do it with less risk as well. So obviously if you're holding an index that has a significant amount, like 8% in a single company, that's a lot, of, lot more risk than if you have 50 companies with 2%. Mm. <laughs> so just working on the maths this <laughs> afternoon. Uh, so we kind of prefer an active approach to this part of the market for that reason because I think there's an edge that, that people can achieve by experience. Um, and we we look at both. We probably prefer Asia over emerging markets and that's because things like Brazil, Russia was included in emerging markets until a year or two ago. Um, and it's more of that. And that's on the pure view that the economic outlook and policy settings in Asia, particularly China, are significantly better than anywhere else in the world. Yeah, um, good point. So the the fund that they mentioned was the Fidelity Global Emerging Markets Fund. They reference an unlisted fund. It's uh, ASX listed as well, the Fidelity Global Emerging Markets Fund, uh, FMEX or FEMEX as it's known in industry. Um, so I think the Fidelity Asia funds are right too, but I'm not sure the whether I think it might be wholesale. Uh, right. What okay. minimum investment, whether it's on a platform or... Okay, right. Okay, yeah. So, just looking at the three-year returns from the Vanguard VGE uh, fund, the total returns from the fund per annum is negative 0.3%. And from the Fidelity fund, it's uh, 3.7%. Obviously, past performance is not indicative of future performance and all that. But it's just an illustration of maybe where some sort of active overlay can help. And I tend to agree with Drew that in stock markets or financial markets or countries where there's some opacity so if there's like you know the uncertainty around regulation government intervention um the types of companies that are exposed to the economy you want it boots on the ground analysts to have like some sort of input uh, i think and so this might be one of those markets where you do get some outperformance but just be mindful that it might not always be the case, and there might be a chat. It might be some come sometime, say ten years from now, where you don't need that, and all the things Drew just talk, talked about, you don't need those anymore. You can just go passive. Uh, so just keep it. Just be mindful of it. That's a great question, though. Uh, so the last question comes from Waza Buffett. What a name, Waza. Says, would love to hear your Waza. thoughts. <laughs> Waza. <laughs> uh, people older than say forty-five don't get what we're talking about, but everyone between my, or well, say thirty and forty-five, get it. Uh, so, <laughs> would love to hear your thoughts on AQLT and how it compares to your others breakdown of Aussie ETFs. So the quality factor seems to be a very po- a popular factor for ETFs. However, seems to me as a perfect fit for Aussie equities as it removes potential stagnant companies that just produce high dividends but have no growth. Obviously, my view is the latter. Good compounding capital growth over time. Thank you. Great question. Um, so quality factor, what does that mean real quick? So you can get ETFs that just target companies with high quality. That would mean things like companies that have a low amount of debt, have consistent profits, and maybe pay consistent dividends. Yep. And growing earnings. And growing yep. profits. Yep. Yep. 
What do you think about the quality factor and quality ETF for Aussie? Everyone thought that uh, growth had dominated, had been the major factor that contributed to returns over the last 10 years, but it was actually quality. Yeah. I think the quality, quality companies. growth have very similar traits and that, that just happened to be that a lot of them were technology because technology doesn't carry much debt because yep. they can't because they don't have assets to secure against their debt <laughs> yeah. most of the time. Um, I think, well, this, I see quality as almost one of the most overused words yeah, in is. finance. What is actual, like, what is quality? Have you ever met someone that said, I want to buy Un- poor quality? Yeah, poor quality stocks. Investments. So, it's, it is that difficult. I think it's a good approach to to investing and I think it probably helps a bit in, in Australia but it, it quality has a different assessment by di- different people it might be completely different in the US Yeah, I looked uh, I think not saying they're not quality companies but BHP and Woodside are cyclical Telstra's in there yeah I mean consistent <laughs> <laughs> there's no growth but consistent but then you've got cyclical companies in there as well so I'm sure they're they're incredibly well managed and they've got solid earnings but if the iron ore price falls then it, it's going to fall like it's it's quite quite simple. So I think we when we build portfolios, we want to know how much exposure we have to factors like quality or value mm. or growth because they're not suited to every market. Um, and I think uh, I personally don't like using an ETF outsource version of a quality factor. Really? Not even sense? the quality ETF, the Van Eck one that does global equities, random stocks? Broadly, no. Broadly, no. Yeah. Okay, interesting. I just don't like the... I think it is more of a fundamental analysis, if that makes sense, rather than just a lot of these are very number-driven. Yeah. yeah. So, the the BetaShares AQLT ETF, just so folks know what it does, it looks for Australian companies only with quality metrics like... Um, it's got like low debt or low leverage, a high return on equity and relative profit stability. Um and I guess it still ends up with a lot of companies like BHP, CSL, West Farmers, Macquarie Bank, Woolworths. It probably does dampen the impact of some of the big banks, like Commonwealth Bank's not till seventh in that list. Um, and Macquarie gets a higher weighting at the time of recording. So it does reduce some of that tilt to banks. Yeah. Because you would obviously have a lot of leverage in those. Um, I, I yeah, this is a tough one actually. I don't actually know. I I don't actually know which way I'd fall on this. It's a thirty-five sitting on the fence as usual. Oh yeah, don't say anything controversial. And now, um, zero point three five percent is the management fee, which isn't terrible. So when so anything below fifty basis points or zero point five percent starts to for me starts to remove the barriers for me having something like this in my core portfolio. Anything over 0.5%, I start to immediately think this is probably going to go in my satellite or a tactical part of my portfolio. Um, and so this is getting down to relatively good cost, deflects some of the focus on the banks. Um, it's about 40 positions, if I'm not mistaken, from memory. True. I think it's about 40 positions. Um, now, so do I think it's a decent ETF? Yeah. Do I need it for Aussie equities? Probably not, is the answer, to be honest. I'm quite comfortable to have my broadly diversified portfolio. Uh, and if I wanted to equal weight that, I could do that with the MVW ETF from Van Eck. And the core is kind of tilted towards quality anyway. Well, that's it. Well, they get they reward the biggest companies. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, yeah I, I probably... You could use it. Uh, like anyone could use it obviously but I would just happy to go broad market for Aussie equities and then maybe at the small cap end have active management Um, for global equities I'm a bit more inclined to look at quality 
as a factor because you're basically scraping the world for high quality companies, which is not as easy to do as it is here in Australia. Better expression of quality with such a broad base than such a small pool. Yeah, well, like the number one holding in this is, what is it, BHP, whereas in the Qual ETF, I don't know what it is off the top of my head, but the last time I checked, I think it was Apple. Yeah. And I think the- Quality is very different in different different, countries. Yeah, think about BHP, Apple, BHP, Apple. Like I think, so it's currently Microsoft followed by Apple. It's quite a different beast. Yeah. So um, that's probably where I'd be more inclined to use something like that. Not, but fair enough. If it goes in the core, it goes in your core. Uh, so good question. But one thing we've got to do, Drew, before we sign off, and it's interesting that you made the scary movie reference before. I made a Super Troopers reference last night and a bunch of people got it. I love Super Troopers. I know. I haven't seen the second one, although I heard it was bootstrapped. Um, but that was, that's, I thought that was pretty good. Um, so we've got to choose between was a, was a Buffett Andrew Derrimut's brother, Richard Gearbox, uh, spelled G-E-R-E box. Uh, Sam. Littering and. <laughs> littering and. Smoking. The, and here we go. Leaving moment. Uh, the incompetent tent pole. <laughs> turtle Jesus. Uh, let's get on the buffet train. The wounded turtle. I kind of like incompetent tent pole. Incompetent tent pole. Yeah, I don't know what it means, but it was right in my wheelhouse. <laughs> I don't think you want to say that too loud, mate. Um, but okay, incompetent tent poll, you have one. Send us an email, however you want to get in contact with us, uh, and just tell us who you are, and we'll send you a, a pass to the Value Investor Program, 499 clams in your pocket. Um, well, I say in your pocket, it's a free course. <laughs> <laughs> we're not giving that money. That. <laughs> we're not giving that cash. We can't give that cash. Um, no cash here, mate. Chopper, chopper reference. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, um, Drew Meredith can be found at Waddle Partners Financial Planning. There is a link in the show notes to fill out a form. Um, and you can learn more about Drew in that show notes. Uh, he's also on Twitter at dmidi13. He does need to get his Twitter rep up because he, I'm trying uh, to get invited to Future Proof. He's trying to get invited to Future Proof. If you're listening, it's a big, uh, like, I guess, influencer? Financial advisor? Financial advisor event in yeah. uh, Huntington Beach run by the guys from Ritholtz. Animal Spirits. There yeah. we go. So, um, Drew needs an invite if you're listening. Uh, and, yeah, I'm Owen Rask. You can find me on Twitter at Owen Rask or just head to the Rask website. There's heaps of information in your show notes. Drew, as always, thanks for joining me. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.